You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. I'm not sure if we're still saying Happy New Year, but Happy New Year. Uh, my name is Dean, the pastor at City Church. I'm sorry I'm not Jake Axon, who preached next last week, uh, but who did an awesome job, didn't he? Aren't you thankful for him and just the fact that our middle school students and high school students get to hear from him regularly. I know I'm, I'm a parent in our student ministry, so I'm very grateful for that. Here's the deal. We care about next generation ministry a lot, our children's ministry, our middle school and high school ministry. I just got back from Des Moines, Iowa, where we took over 100 college students to our national SALT Network conference. The SALT Network is a network of churches, a local church focused all across the country that prioritizes collegiate cities, like cities that actually have a college campus. And we had 5,000 college students from 30 different schools, from Oregon to Syracuse to us, all come together. And it was just awesome. We're part of that, which is really neat. Our church is a part of that. It's common nowadays to hear kind of in evangelical circles to hear people say, you know, don't send your kids to state colleges or to private secular universities. You're just throwing them to the wolves. They're going to lose their faith. You know, they're going to walk away from the Lord. They're going to be in all kinds of sin and all these sort of things. And, and my response to that is always just, kinda, it's just a question. And that is, has you, have you ever heard of the SALT Network? Because the goal of the SALT Network, we've identified over 400 university cities in America, and we want to have a local church in every single one of those cities. So be praying that we keep going and start churches in over 400 college cities in America so the gospel can go out through his design, the local church. We're a part of that. I'm really thankful for it. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll jump in uh, to the book of Acts. Actually, Acts 2, 1, oh, sorry, we're done with Acts. <laughs> to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the next generation, that you and your grace and your love and even your favor are allowing us to have an open door with children and with high school and middle school students and with college students. And I just ask that we'll be faithful. And you'll allow us to show them, this multi-generational church, that life with God really is better. It really is best. They don't have to go around you for what they're looking for in their lives. They can actually go right to you. Uh, so I just ask for all of us in this room, every age, that we'll believe together that we are loved by you, that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose again so we can trust him, that he really is the Messiah, and that we'll all believe, despite our faults and our mistakes and the times we mess up, we'll all believe together that you are worth our lives. You are so much more than a hobby or a checklist, that you are the God of the universe who allows us to know you and be in a relationship with you. Lord, and I just ask that matters for all of us. As I speak this morning, I ask you to get the enemy out of this place, to be with all the churches in our community as they gather today, that you be with our missionaries around the world as they're letting people know about your love for them. As Martin Luther King Day comes tomorrow, that we will be a people who love our neighbor and who care about the dignity of every single person. Lord, let us love because you loved us. Lord, I ask you to speak to me this morning, and all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Acts 2.0, the book of Acts, so going through the scriptures, in the Old Testament, people are anticipating Christ. They've been promised a Messiah would come who would one day liberate God's people from their sins. They didn't know exactly how that would pan out because they're people just like us, but they had a promise. So the Old Testament is before Jesus came and people anticipating him. The Gospels, the four first books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is about life with Jesus. He actually has come. He was born in a major in Bethlehem. He lived a perfect life. He died the death he came to die in our place for our sins to reconcile us, to make us right with God. He rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven and one day will come again to judge the living and the dead, as the creed says. Then you get to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see Jesus ascend and God designs his church and organizes it. So you can say the book of Acts going forward is now life after Jesus. Now, God is still with us. The Holy Spirit has come and filled the life of believers. Jesus has promised he will come back again. But now they're saying, all this has happened. 
All that God has promised has come true. Now how do we live? Now what's the point? Now how do we do this thing called Christianity as the missionaries God has called us to? So Jake was in the second half of Romans this past week. I want to be in the beginning part, kind of working backwards. We're going to be in two verses this morning that are really packed with a lot of good stuff that I'm going to work through. Romans 12, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Let's read it. Therefore, brothers and sisters, so he's writing to Christians, to the family of God, spiritual brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God. And that just sentence to me is like a deep breath. Not in view of all the things you have to do to make God love you. Not in view of all the religious weight that's on your shoulders you have to make sure you conform to or you'll just feel guilty all the time. There's just like a, therefore, what I'm about to tell you is in views of the mercies of God. It's based on God's love for us. What God's done for us in Jesus that God does not punish us as our sins deserve, so you don't have to worry about that anymore if you trust in Christ. It's a deep breath, I feel, when I read that line. Brothers and sisters, the family of God, in view of the mercies of God. I can just almost feel their guards being let down a little bit as they're reading this and hearing this letter being read. He says, I urge you, get serious, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now we're gonna dig in in just a few minutes and see what that really means he says, holy and pleasing to God. He goes, this is your true worship. Now, I want to know what true worship is. If there's false worship, I want to make sure that I'm in tune with what's true. He says, in the view of the mercies of God, you need to have someone with true worship. And he says, don't be conformed to this age. How easy is it to be conformed to these times, to these moments culturally where we find ourselves? He says, but I give you an alternative. Instead of that, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Either you're gonna to conform to this world or be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that word renewing, there's that I-N-G, it's, it's ongoing, it's not past tense. He says there's a point to this, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Who wants to know God's will for their life? I know I do all the time. If you have a seminar called Discovering God's Will, you'll pack it out. And here he's saying that if we are not transformed, if we transform rather than conform, we'll understand what God wants of us. We'll be able to live out the Acts 2.0. Now as his people, he's called to be part of his family and part of his mission. So the therefore at the start of this chapter is the takeaway from the great doctrines of the faith. I urge you, Paul writes, that's a response to Romans chapter 1 through 11, which would be so much worth your time to read. The whole book of Romans, but Romans 1 through 11 on your own, leading up to chapter 12. And Paul writes, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you. In other words, because of the truth and implications of the gospel that I just covered for 11 chapters in this letter, here now is how God has called us to live according to his will. Here's now what God has invited us to as people who are part of his family. Because the truth and implications of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, here we go. Justin Taylor wrote this based on what I just read to you. Yes, because the great doctrines of creation, all the things Romans 1 through 11 covers, righteousness, depravity, which is about our lowly state before God as sinners, faith, a gift God gives us, propitiation, which is that Christ was satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. He was a satisfactory substitute because he had no sin in order to be punished. 
Justification meaning we're declared not guilty before God because Christ was guilty in our place. Union with Christ, that we're now one with the Lord. Sanctification, the process of becoming more holy, more like Christ. Glorification, what awaits us in heaven, a real place where real people go. Election, that God has chosen us to be his before the foundation of the world. I want to read that again without commentary. Yes, because of the great doctrines of creation, righteousness, depravity, faith, propitiation, justification, union with Christ, sanctification, glorification, election. Therefore, by God's mercy and grace, we can respond to the following imperatives. And then there's Romans 12, 1 through 2. But it's important to note that we don't do this isolated on a Christian colony. We do this in the world. That God does not call us to retreat and just hold on to these truths, but to live them out in the place where he has placed us in this society, in this culture, at this time. But here's what makes this so complicated, and there's a tension here. Our reality is that everything is screaming in our minds, yelling in our hearts, talking in our ears to not live in light of the mercy we've received, but to live for yourself instead. Not to live in light of the mercies of God, but to live for whatever you want, what you feel, what you think, what's convenient. By you, I should say us, that we're all tempted that way. Live for you. Do whatever makes you happy. That's the mantra of our day. And here is Paul writing to the church because of the grace that God has shown you, because you know he's real, because you've experienced in your life, because you've been forgiven of your sins. Now don't be conformed to that world's messaging and their values. Be conformed to another world that's in this world, and that is the people of God. In his book, The Foolishness to the Greeks, written decades ago, Leslie Newbegin wrote this. No room remains empty for long. Now read this metaphorically. No room remains empty for long. If God is driven out, the gods come trooping in. And how often when it comes to our minds and our hearts, we don't have intellectual belief in God, like an agreement that he exists and he's real, but does the reality of his grace and his goodness and his name and what he's called us to get driven out of our minds all the time? Well, when that happens, we don't remain neutral. Something else comes in and occupies that space. And it's usually the things of this world. And what do we do? We start to believe lies. There's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. If you're like me, it's easy for you to believe that. That I have to go around God for all the things I'm looking for rather than write to him for meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction and joy. And towards the end of his life, Newbegin, who was someone who was really encouraging Christians to not forget about the West as a mission field. That yes, we have to go to unreached areas. Our missions pastor is in Cambodia right now, meeting with a unreached, a, a, some missionaries that are looking at us partnering with an unreached people group there. Unreached meaning the gospel has never gotten to them before. So we must diligently care about those who have never heard. We must continue to go. At, it's not but, it's at the same time, Newbegin saying, don't forget the West is still a massive mission field. There might be church buildings on many corners, but not much going on inside. The people who think they're Christians simply because they're not atheists, or they're not agnostics, or they're not Muslim, or they're not Jewish, rather than their answer for being a Christian, meaning they believe in the truth of Jesus and have said, Christ, now here's my life. And Newbegin begging the West to wake up to this reality of the need for churches and for 
telling the good news and for people taking their lives seriously about Jesus, he asked this question, who will be the missionaries to our culture? Who's it going to be? Who will confront this culture of ours with the claim of absolute truth? The claim that Jesus Christ really is the way. He really is the truth. He really is the life. And I really believe that the folks who are going to answer me, like sign me up, are going to be the people of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. These are the people who will continue the mission from the book of Acts. John Piper said these words, that we are perfectly useless. I don't want this to be said of me. Useless as Christ-exalting Christians if all we do is conform to the world around us. Take that as a warning more than a condemnation. A warning. And for me, just someone who's grew up in Tallahassee and still lives here and is just, you know, part of normal Tallahassee life and not anyone who thinks he's any more spiritual than anyone else in this room, I worry that we think as long as we don't have the big sins, the big sins kind of relative, usually big sins means whatever other people think are big sins. As long as we don't have like catastrophic sins that like wreck everything or put us in the newspaper, that we're in the clear, that, that we're fine. But there's so much more to the Christian life. There's so much more to living as people who have been given grace and shown the mercies of God and also an awareness of how real that metaphor is that he gives us that if the room in our hearts becomes unoccupied with the truth of the gospel, that idols are gonna come trooping in. But as long as we look good, as long as we feel okay, and as long as the kids are happy and there's no catastrophic sins, we think we're out of the woods. You know, we think we're out of the woods. You know, I ask the question, are we out of the woods yet? Are we out of the woods yet? Are we out of the woods? Are we in the clear yet? Are we in the clear yet? Are we in the clear yet? My daughter gets that reference. Because we're not doing bad things. So we're fine. But the mistake we've made is that we compare ourselves to others rather than comparing ourselves to God. So when I compare myself to somebody else, as long as I'm in step with what morality looks like in Tallahassee in the year 24, then I feel okay. Got my faith, check, you know, check mark. Got my, you know, morals are at least in line with everybody else, it seems like. No big sins, no crazy sins. But when we compare ourselves to God, the one who is holy, we fall short every single time. Because a holy God can't even let one sin into his presence, which is why when we read something like, in view of the mercies of God, it's that amazing that a holy God would come and redeem and forgive and love and invite a people like us who have sinned against him into his family. But there's a truth for us here we must grab onto what God's will is for us now as the Christians who have been sent on mission. So I want to unpack verses one and two just for a minute here. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God. So they're like, okay, great, that's awesome. I urge you, so they're like, okay, he's gonna get serious here, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Now, this would not have sounded strange at first because of a few of the words in there. They might even thought that Paul misspoke and put some words in there he didn't mean to because in a Jewish audience and anyone who would understand the Old Testament and was around at that time knew that it was a regular thing for Jewish people under the authority of God, under what he had called them to do, to present, there's that word, 
a sacrifice. So once a year on the Day of Atonement, they would bring their sheep or their lamb or their pigeon, their dove, their goat to be inspected as pure enough by their standards. It would go to a priest. A priest would stand between the people and God because we couldn't have access to God on our own because of our sin. And they were told the wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So the priest would take that animal, I know you've already ate breakfast, thankfully, and would slaughter the animal, and the blood of that lamb, all the PETA people are like, what? And, and the blood, eat more meat, and the, and, the, and the blood of the lamb would be used to give you atonement for your sins and appease at that moment the wrath of God for your sins against him. Now notice I didn't say forgive your sins. It would provide atonement for your sins. What's the difference? Atonement meant your sins would be covered for a little while. But a year down the road, you had to come back to the temple and to the priest and bring your sacrifice to make amends between you and God, and the priest would bring that sacrifice and the cycle would repeat itself over and over and over again. So like, yeah, yeah, we present sacrifices. That's what we do. But they're like, wait a second. Did y'all see what Paul wrote in there? I think he messed up, which we believe every word of the Bible is inspired and inerrant and authoritative from God, so there is no mess up. But in their mind, they're going, huh, living sacrifice? And then he said, present our bodies? Like, we cannibal- like is this like cannibalism? Like, what's he talking about here? And it had been very confusing. Therefore, brothers and sisters, view the mercies of God, present your bodies as a sacrifice? It's like, wait, is a cult starting here? It sounds pretty wild. Imagine receiving this letter and reading that for the first time. But what he's telling them is, you know how you would always bring the lamb to the temple because that lamb would cover your sins? Since Jesus has come, the lamb of God doesn't just forgive your sins for a little while, but forgive your sins forever as far as the east is from the west. He's lamb of God, so shed his blood so you don't have to go through that system anymore. You don't need a priest to stand between you and God. Because Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And that blood of that lamb was only pointing to a greater blood from a greater lamb who would forgive God's people once and for all forever. So what is God calling you to do now? Not going to the temple once a year and bring your animal and present your sacrifice and go, whoo, we're clear, we're in the clear, go home. He's calling you to figuratively place your own body, as in your whole self, on the altar And rather than walking out the door and going home, leaving it there. Leaving it there. And saying, God, I am yours. All of my life now is worship is not an event. It's now who I am. I'm a worshiper of you. So they're getting this letter and going, he wants us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. They're looking around going, can someone kind of break this down? But what he's telling them is, this now is your true worship. And this is now what is pleasing to God. That Jesus has abolished that system because he fulfilled that system. So I don't need a mediator because Jesus is. I don't need the blood of a random lamb because the blood of the lamb has been shed once and for all. So now I say, because of the mercies of God, because you have done this for me, here is my life. I'm placing it in front of you in worship and I'm leaving it there. So what repentance might look like for us pretty regularly is to kind of readjust ourselves on the altar. Where we start to kind of have a leg hang off. It's almost like your own spiritual chiropractic adjustment. Just kind of, okay, where, where am I out of line here? 
Where am I not aligned? And then I understand that in my heart, and then by God's grace, I present myself over and over again on the altar before the Lord and say, here I am, I'm yours. Then he gets to verse two. Don't be conformed to this age. Again, how tempting, how easy it is, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you may discern, God wants us to know what is good. He wants to know what he has for us, what's pleasing and what's the perfect will of God. See, there's a vacuum. There's a worship vacuum in our hearts and in our minds, and the answer is what's going to be filled by it. Like Newbegin said, is the room going to be empty of God? And it's not just going to stay there empty for years and years and years. It's going to be filled by something else. And what's going to fill it? What you desire, what you want. Other values, other worldviews, other religions, other truth claims. See, the result is not that other people don't worship. They've relocated their worship. Again, we just think as long as big sins aren't happening, then we're good. But our own desires are the problem. Our own desires is what Paul's warning about. Those are the false gods. So what does that mean? If our desires are out of line and are so easily led astray, it means every single person in this room, myself included, should be suspicious of what we want. I don't mean walk around paranoid, but should be suspicious of our own hearts. What's the world tell us? Trust your heart. Follow your heart. The scriptures would say, time out. Be skeptical of your heart. Be suspicious. We love to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And we love our desires that we have to be given the benefit of the doubt. That we assume they're right. We should be more skeptical and cautious of ourselves and where our minds and hearts can lead us if they're not on the altar worshiping the Lord. John Piper says this, the problem with our minds is not merely they are finite and don't have all the information. The problem is that our minds are fallen. They're not what they were created to be. In our rebellion against God, we're now in a fallen state. They have a spirit, a bent, a mindset that is hostile to the supremacy of God being absolute. Our minds are bent on not seeing God as infinitely more worthy of praise than we are or the things we want or the things we desire to achieve. And that's where those two lies come from. We don't think God is absolutely supreme over even us. Then we're going to believe there's more to be gained by disobeying him. I got to go around him. So the relationship between verses 1 and 2 in Romans 12 is really important to grab because of the problem with our minds. Verse 1 says we should present our bodies, that is our whole active life, as a living sacrifice, as our actual active worship. So the goal and point and aim of all of life is to be worshipers of God. Like, that's the point now. That's the Acts 2.0, is live our lives as worshipers. We're to use our whole selves, our whole lives, to display the greatness of God. He's not saying don't care about other things, but let those other things that we want be what fuels us to worship God because we celebrate his goodness and his blessing in our lives. The word worship, the word worship is made up of two words, worth-ship, W-O-R-T-H-ship. So we're ascribing worth or value to something. So now our lives are called by God to be in his will as living sacrifices, meaning that our lives now are ascribing worth and value and greatness to God, which means our lives are now ones of worship. So here comes in verse two. So this whole verse one, he's helping them understand that basically the new system of how God sees things. And it wasn't a plan B, it was God's plan all along. That the Old Testament sacrifices were always pointing to one who would come. So he's saying in order for verse one to be a reality in your life, here's verse two. Like our minds must be renewed. 
Why? Because our minds by nature are not now God-worshiping minds. They're self-worshiping minds. So what happens? Either God's word sweeps in or the world sweeps in. So we have a crisis, a tension that happens regularly and it's one of supremacy. Like who do we think is better? Who do we think is worthy of our worship? Me or the Lord? And I think that's why Paul begins by saying in view of the mercies of God. Because notice he's not shaming them here. He's not guilting them into this. There's not a billy club here. What he's doing is he's reminding them of how much better Jesus really is than anything this world has to offer. For 11 chapters, he walked them through the greatness of God and what he's done for us to redeem us and forgive us of our sins and make us part of his family. What it means to be called a child of God. Then he says, because of all this, the world can't offer you any of that. Maybe for a minute, for a moment, but not. then you gotta go find it again. He goes, no. Jesus said, you drink from me, you'll have living water, one that endures. You'll never thirst again. So Romans 12, 1, we could say, is living our new identity. Our identity now is one of worshipers. Romans 12, 2 shows us the new practices of that identity and the habits we need to reinforce the new direction of our lives after meeting Jesus. That we're saved now, not just from our sins, but we're saved to something. We're saved to be worshipers. We're saved to be a part of God's family, to be a part of his mission. The word transformed is there in verse two. The word is used one time only in the gospels, to my knowledge. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, known as the Mountain of Transformation. It's the same word. He was transfigured before them, the text says. There's three disciples there, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. There's a transformation that happens in your conversion. It's important to know that when thinking about being transformed, because we're not talking about New Year's resolutions. It's not what we're talking about. Is that even still a thing? It's been two weeks. That's still a thing. New Year's resolutions. The Christian alternative to sinful and immoral, godless behavior is not a new list of moral behaviors. It's not a better checklist and more willpower. It's the power of the miracle of transformation by the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the answer now. A God dependence, a heart posture of worship. Took our high school students to uh, North Carolina for a retreat last year, like a youth conference. And uh, Matt Smethurst, who's a pastor in Richmond, and he also is an editor at the Gospel Coalition website, which is a great resource, uh, he was speaking at one of the sessions. And he told our students this. He said, when you become a Christian, you get a new identification card and a new job description. Those are two things that take place. A new identification card, you're now a child of God, you're now a worshiper of the Lord, and a new job description is now what God has called you to do. And it's easy just to jump to mission right there and say, our new job description is to be missionaries. Absolutely, that's part of it. But first and foremost, we're not going to be effective missionaries if we don't see our job description as the fact that we are worshipers. That we are worshipers. And that our worship is gonna lead to missions. Because oftentimes, mission is the places where worship doesn't exist, as in the worship of Christ. So we encourage our students, I think about job descriptions. I mean, all of you who are employed in here probably have one. I'm guessing 80% have never read it. <laughs> you know, you have one. Uh, you only read it, if, you only have read it if you have something happen you don't like. It's not in my job description. Can anybody find where that is? You know, that kind of, that kind of thing. They're, they're oftentimes not taken seriously enough. I mean, they're really a good resource. They should be taken a little more seriously. 
But it's easy to become a Christian and just sort of receive faith and, and kind of take a deep breath and go, okay, I'm a Christian now, I'm following Jesus, and never pay attention to the description God has given us and now what he calls us to do as his people. But we have been given a job description. And it's to be worshipers who are on mission. Worshippers who are on mission for God. That's the Acts 2.0. That our views now, our new ID card, our new job description, our, our views now come from above. They, they don't come from below. You know what happens in an office place when people go rogue on the lower floors than the upper floors? Things get a little crazy, don't they? Conflict happens, different sins set in, bitterness sets in, anxiety sets in, no one's happy. Because upstairs is saying one thing, but downstairs is saying something different. For us now, we don't get our views from down here. Like this world is not the source of truth for us. It's not the source of meaning or value or fulfillment. The Lord is now there for us. That's why we, while we live here and God has us here, we want people who are constantly reminded that our first posture and first responsibility and first job description is to be worshipers of the Lord. Peter wrote this, therefore with your minds ready for action, that mind idea again, that God cares about how we think, about what fills us. And the action is to now live your mission in the world. Be sober-minded. Think about a mind that's sober, that's clear. It's not being altered by anything else. Sober-minded. And set your hope, not kind of, not when you feel bad, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As in, have the end in mind. Have God's mercies and his promises on the forefront of your thinking. Because that's going to be what combats when the world says, We're, our stuff is better. As obedient children, and that's what we are, God calls us his children, he's our father, don't be conformed, there's that thought again, to the desires of your former ignorance. And that's important. So Paul writes to the, at large to Rome, he says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. And then Peter reminds us that we used to be those people. He points us back to our former life and says, God saved you from this. Don't go back to it. I also think remembering that we used to be those people should actually lead us to have hearts that are a lot more patient with folks, a lot less judgmental towards those who are trying to figure it out. Because we realize the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is Jesus. And without Christ, we would be back exactly where we used to be. Maybe it wasn't the big, huge sins, but it was a life that wasn't devoted to God and devoted to yourself and to the world. So I tell people regularly, don't expect people who aren't Christians to act like they are and get mad when they don't. I'm a Christian, and I'm not great at always acting like I am. Why should someone who's not a Christian act like a Christian, think like a Christian? Like, it, it just gets us so confused. But we must remember, and in grace remember, that it's Jesus that's the difference. It's grace that's the difference. But if you have been given grace and have been shown Christ, it means that your life now should not reflect the life you lived and thought and believed before you came to know Jesus. So Peter says, don't return back to that. And he's not afraid to call a spade a spade and say, you know what, you were ignorant before. You were ignorant to the things of God. And now God, by his grace, has opened your eyes to see so we don't conform, we don't take our marching orders from TikTok. We don't take our marching orders from the latest news headline. We don't take our marching orders from our professors, as qualified as they are, they're still not God. They're still not God. But now we submit ourselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ and all things flow from our belief in him. 
So we must see worship as a posture more than simply an activity. It's a past posture of the heart more into something we do. And we can easily revert back to an Old Testament system. And I'm not saying the Old Testament believers, so praise God for them, that, that, that their hearts weren't right or they were just going through the motions. I'm not saying that. But system-wise, system-wise, it could very easily just be a checklist. Said my prayers today, tried my best to obey the Ten Commandments, went to the Jewish festivals, you know, said the things I was, you know, went to the temple once a year, went for Sabbath, you know, kept the Sabbath, like, like and it's like, okay, I'm good, I'm good. Where God's much more concerned for your heart and your desires than simply your, what you're doing. He cares about what is the source of that. It might be easy to go, okay, great, if worship's more of a posture than an activity, then I don't need to go to church. Well, careful with that. Because all of this is written in the context of local churches. So the way this was designed to be carried out and thought about and lived was in the context of being part of a local church. But there's no such thing as an unchurched Christianity in the Bible. So I just want to challenge everybody here, as we're still kind of in the new year, I guess, that if you would, it sounds strange, but I really believe this, if you would give and just declare to give, like as a family or as an individual, that for one year, one year, that we are going to make the local church and we're going to have a church that preaches the Bible, that our, that our kids enjoy, that we want to be a part of, that if you decide for a year that we're going to give the local church a chance and make it an absolute priority in our life. Again, not that you're going to be here 52 Sundays a year. I work here. I'm not here 52 Sundays a year, okay? If you are, awesome. But it's going to be a priority in our life. It's going to matter more than all the other things. I guarantee you, guarantee you, a year from now, your life will be different. Now, I don't mean better by the world standards. God does not promise us success. He does not promise us health. He does not promise us a flawless life. He doesn't promise us any of those things. But spiritually, I promise you, for one year, that at the end of December next year, you're going to look back and go, deciding to go all in with the church is the greatest decision we've ever made as a family. I guarantee you that will happen. Guarantee and if I'm wrong, you can mock me all day long. And I'm going to say, give it another year. No, I'm just kidding. So <laughs> it matters. It matters. See, seeing ourselves as worshipers from our hearts, our lives as on the altar permanently, it gives us purpose. It means every moment matters. There's a little devotional book, I think it's on its third volume now, called Every Moment Holy. And it's like little prayers, kind of liturgies for every single thing you could think of. It's like a little prayer for pouring the morning coffee. You know, there's, it's, just, it's just really, it's just, and I'm not, not that you have to like every, I'm not saying that every second of your life you have to be like, prayer, I, I don't mean that. But they're just, show, the whole point of it is that every moment matters. Like the ordinary matters. Like there's no this is worship and this isn't. They're like, all of life is worship of God because we're living our lives in light of the mercies of God. I mean, in that, in that book, I mean, it's, it's like, there was a liturgy for like decorating the Christmas tree. I mean, there's like prayers for everything you could imagine. It's just really neat. You know, like there's a prayer for people who keep bees and, you know, and that's like their thing. I'm like, wow, like we really are covering all the bases, right? Yeah, and it's just, and the whole point I bring that up is, one, it'd be great for you to check out. It's called Every Moment Holy, but it helps us to see that worship's not a checklist, that all of life now is God. Here's my new identification card. Here's my new job description. I'm a worshiper of you. And we're mindful of that regularly because the world is begging us to come worship it. Begging us. And the devil's strategy is to get you to give in. 
to get you to give in. And it's really easy in our kind of suburban, western kind of Tallahassee culture to kind of have one foot in and one foot out. Again, I'm in the world as long as it's not too big of sins, but I'm still kind of like faithish too. Let's let what we believe to be true about Jesus drive every single other area of our lives. Our friendships, how we forgive people, how we treat our spouses, how we raise our kids, how we make choices on activities and the things that we do and what's important, what's not important, how we raise our money, what makes us get out of bed in the morning, how we respond to grief and to tragedy. Like, let's let our faith drive everything. Why? Because first and foremost, we're worshipers of the Lord before we're anything else. One year, and I promise you your life will be different because you're participating in God's design for his people. How he, li- how he designed for things to be lived out as all the time worshipers. So what is worship before I pray? I would say that worship is moment by moment, every moment holy, recognition, as in I'm, I'm responding to who you are, not a God that I made up, recognition and response to, so in light of the mercies of God, so moment by moment, recognition and response to the greatness and goodness of God. That's what worship is. So we don't leave here after church on Sunday having worshiped. We leave here worshiping. And we came with other worshipers together to be encouraged and to hear God's word and to pray together and sing the songs of the faith and celebrate missions together and the things that God is doing. Not so we could say, wow, we worshiped. So it fuels us walking out those doors to keep worshiping the rest of the week till we come back again. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is what's holy. This is what's pleasing to God. This is what God's will is. And you're not gonna do that if you're conformed to the patterns of this world rather than being transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's worth it. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Our Father, we are acknowledging together as a church that we have been called to worship you. Called as your people to bring glory and honor and worth to you. We know that you don't need it. That you and yourself are self-existent and fully satisfied. You don't need us. But you invite us to be a part of it. To be known by you. To be in your family. To point others to you. To celebrate you. To declare your greatness and goodness in every moment of our lives. So I ask for those in this room, myself included, there won't be any little moments today or going forward that we'll see something as simple as sitting on the couch and writing, reading a book all the way to driving to Easter at the Civic Center as an opportunity to enjoy your goodness and your greatness and who you are. So we're thankful that you didn't just save us from our sins, which is incredible in itself. You saved us to something, to be a part of something. And your local church has been your design from the beginning. That all was pointing us to this, that one day the Messiah would come. The Lamb of God would come and take away the sins of the world. So we're thankful we don't need to go through a priest because there is one mediator between God and man and his name is Jesus. So let us be confident in Christ, unashamed of the good news of the gospel. Let our minds be transformed daily to believe and to think and to understand that you really are better than anything this world has to offer. We're thankful for the name of Jesus. Now we sing about his great name and we ask this prayer in his name. Amen.